Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode eight of the Founding Fellows podcast. As always, I'm your co-host, Zach Rainsford, joined by Braden Hind. And today we have a special guest. Some of you may know him as Nick Reed. Others may know him as, I don't know, maybe idiot or something like that. This guy can barely even keep his head on straight. He's losing everything left, right, and center. He's down a passport right now. I saw he was at the Canadian Embassy earlier today. I'm guessing that's what it was for. (laughs) Nick, what's up, buddy? Oh, well. Got to figure out how to turn on my microphone to start, but uh, no, I I do have my passport. Um, down a couple other things though, but yeah, I guess you could say uh, my head's barely on. I guess. Rumor might have it that you're uh, also down a tooth. Hein, <laughs> do you want to touch on that? <laughs> neither confirm nor deny. I don't want to start rumors, but from what I'm seeing on the Zoom call, uh... <laughs> there's definitely one jib missing. Well, I don't, I don't, I didn't realize that, you know, in order to hang out with the fellas, I had to have a tooth and, you know, it's, it's not necessary, but it is desired. We don't like to discriminate. You know, we welcome all sorts of people, including yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Just another one of the fellas. All right, boys. So Nick, for those of you that don't know, is a Canadian living in America, living abroad. But if you were to look at any of his social medias, you would have no idea this guy's Canadian. Uh, we obviously have some stuff to talk about today as far as America goes, but we're going to start off by discussing the world juniors. So let's get some takes here. What did you guys think? Hein, you want to start off, uh, start us off here? Yeah, I didn't even want to talk about it. I couldn't sleep. I had to get up for an appointment early morning, kind of ruined the next 48 hours for me. Uh, Canada looked like a bunch of first round pick fairies, didn't have any grit, didn't really have that same drive that the Americans have with those later picks and that that chemistry they had from their, you know, from the, the youth program out of, out of Michigan. So it's pretty much all I'll say for now. I'll throw it over to Nick. Uh, he's obviously semi-American. So what's your take on it? But just before you do that, I just want to mention the score of the game for those of you that don't know. Canada lost the gold medal game in the World Juniors 2 to nothing. Couldn't even get a goal. So, Nick, take us away here, you American. Well, I'll tell you what. Um so my wife's parents are big uh, USA hockey fans, and you're married. Oh uh, yeah, I'm married somehow. Um, but they they were in my uh, text messages giving me a really good go. Um, in fact, my father in law told me to hop back on the plane and uh, head back to Canada after that abysmal showing. Zinger! That was a zinger. It was embarrassing that that showing. Um, but you know, you guys had said it uh, when you had a uh, cheese on, you know people are going to have to take third and fourth line roles and get pucks deep and, you know, play hockey, play the gritty part of hockey. And uh, it didn't really seem like anybody really wanted to do, do that. Remember, uh, uh, Braden said something in a text message group chat that Cozens is soft. He didn't even take the hit to make a play or something on the wall there, which led to, I think, the first goal, maybe the second. I can't remember which one, but Hein was hit the nail on the head there with uh, nobody wanted to play gritty. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know uh, what the NBC saying down there as far as names go, but that's Dylan Cousins you're talking about. He was second in the tournament in scoring. Cousins um, in French, right? Cousins, give him a Cousins, a little je ne sais quoi. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he was a ghost in that gold medal game, unfortunately. Um, I got a couple of things that I want to touch on here. It's expected that Canada's going to lose some of these tournaments. Like We can't expect to win every single one. And as the game grows we're going to see other countries start uh, putting together some great teams. And this American team was superb. They, uh, their weak spot was definitely on the back end. Their defense core was not as good 
as some of the other teams in the tournament, but they had the goaltending there to, uh, to essentially solve that problem for them. So do you guys think that, you know, these other countries coming up, do you think it's a cause for concern as far as Canadian hockey goes in the development we have and the development system we have? Um, I think, you know, it's kind of silly to sit here and think that Canada is going to be able to reign supreme for years to come every single year. Like we had have in the past for the most part, because, you know, our population is growing, but you look at the the size of a country like the United States and the percentage of the population that's actually becoming interested in hockey and now the player development programs that are arising even in southern states. So I think it's a bit silly to kind of sit back and as a Canadian, you know, we're kind of used to winning, especially in hockey, and it is frustrating. But at the same time, you can't just expect us to win every year like the Americans are catching up. I, I know the Finns and Swedes have smaller populations, but hockey's becoming, you know, part of their culture over there it already is and and you see a country like like russia kind of doing the same thing so you know we only have so many people in canada and we have a you know a very old system with how we do things with the chl and, and reluctance to kind of have canadian development programs and you saw it firsthand what it can do for the americans and just the chemistry with all those i think it was about 15 16 guys on that team played together uh, when they were younger in u.s development camp so you could just see it the lack of chemistry and that lack of what's the word I'm looking for? We'll call it accountability with the Canadian team when they're in that gold medal game. They just didn't, you know, you don't know each other that well. And, and it really showed you, they didn't have each other's backs. It became very individualistic and uh, yeah, a bit sad. What do you think uh, reader? I agree with every, the sentiment you guys have, although I do have a little bit more of a positive outlook. Um, you're missing uh, the number one pick in the draft this year, who is not made available by New York. Can't really blame them, but I, I think, when you're looking at teams like Braden said, you know, that collective, you know, chemistry that, that, that teams have in this tournament um, it is huge. You know, a lot of the U S guys played together and um, like the U S national team has developed some absolute studs um, over the past five, 10 years. Um, and I think like if Canada was to take more of that approach, I don't know if the OHL and WHL and Q would, would uh, do something like that, but, I think I think uh, Braden hit it on the head there that you know that chemistry and that um, willingness to play for each other and you know accept different roles um, really separates the U.S. team and the Canadian team this year. So I think going forward, um, we may need to rethink our approach to it. Zach, what do you think? I already know my take, and it's quite negative. What do you think of speaking of the second overall pick, Byfield? I thought he looked abysmal. Well, it's tough. Yeah, I, I don't think that he had a, a tournament that he would have liked to have had. Obviously, he did have a six-point game against Finland, which was outstanding, but he didn't have any huge plays in that in that game. It was more like right play, right time, secondary assists, that sort of thing. Like There was not a game where he really impressed me. Uh, I really hope that he is able to develop to the National League level. He's he's a big kid, right? He's six foot five and he's still young. So I think he's got plenty of time to come into his own. And uh, I think I, I I hope he becomes a good high pedigree NHL player. And I think that it's possible for him, but it might just be a slower development curve. But he's definitely got the potential there. There's no way that you know all these pros all these scouts and GMs and stuff had him going that high in the draft and he's not gonna be a good prospect, right? Yeah. Nowadays, it's very difficult for, you know, these top five, top 10 picks to not pan out. Like they're so everything, they're under a microscope from like the age of 13, 14, right? Everybody's watching their development. It's not like the NHL 20, 30 years ago where a guy puts up 150 points in 30 games and 
you know, a U16 league. It's not like that anymore. Um, everybody's under the microscope. They're watched for years and years leading up to the draft. So I like to think that the scouts and GMs didn't get this one wrong, but I don't know he didn't have a good showing. That's, that's the bottom line there. Now, if you were to come up with an ideal way to develop Canadian Canadian players, like we've already heard of the reluctance to do a development program, but if you could tweak it right now, what would be something you'd pitch to CHL owners? Well, the thing is, as these countries start getting better, Canada needs to rethink the process. Obviously, we have the CHL, which is the best development league in the world by far. The CHL, for those of you that don't know, is the Canadian Hockey League. It's made up of the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. It's made up of the Ontario Hockey League and also the Western Hockey League. So it's all across Canada. There's 60 teams and it's basically like three sub leagues. And then at the end of the year, they all compete for the Memorial Cup. So my idea is that Canada should make a development program with a U16 and a U18 team, 25 players per team. So that's going to take 50 players, 50 young athletes away from potential club teams. But what it's going to do is it's going to make these top prospect teams. So there is a top prospect game and stuff like that, right? Where the top players from every league come together and they, they play essentially Mm -hmm. a a game for the scouts. Why don't we have a full season of that for these U16 and U18 guys where they can go out and they play, they travel across the country and they just keep playing these other CHL teams. So for example, they could start in Kamloops and they work their way like to Brandon, Winnipeg, you know, that sort of thing. And they just go all the way across the country. You can hit smaller markets so it's going to be huge in revenue and then the, the smaller markets can uh, promote it and they can get fans in the stadium, pack the stadium when they're typically not packing it. So I think, and it's going to be great for the growth in the game of hockey. And after the U18 team, I think there should be two options for these kids. Either they go to the CHL, so they go to the club team, however you figure out uh, or however you determine the rights is, you know, it's up to the league or something like that. You're going to have to take a look at that. Or they go to the NHL. I don't think they should be allowed to go to the AHL. But if you've got two of these development program teams going around, every single CHL team should be able to get a, a team or a game against one of these teams, mm-hmm. whether it's a U16 or U18 team. And there are going to be studs on these teams that are going to get fans in the seats. Like, for example, last year or two years ago, even you get Shane Wright, who's one of the top prospects in hockey, traveling around the traveling around Canada and people get the opportunity to see him play. Absolutely. Yeah. You think people wouldn't pay, you know, 30, 40 bucks to get his ticket and go watch a 15-year-old McDavid play the next Wayne Gretzky? Absolutely. Same with Sidney Crosby. People are going to want to go watch these athletes. Yeah. So I think it's a good way to grow the game, and I think it's going to be a great way to put together these teams that are going to help Canada develop players at the same level and rate that these other countries with larger populations are doing so currently. And you agree, Nick? I mean, yeah, I, I agree to an extent that, you know, we need. We really do need to revisit um, the way we um, develop athletes. Um, but I, I agree with Zach that you know, could you imagine watching like a McDavid or a Crosby at like 15, 16 years old playing against like a twenty year old in in the Western uh, Western Hockey League? Like I think it would just be electric and it, and it would be elite and I think it would help their development as well. I think maybe the the one concern I would I would share is, um, you know, the size and the um, mm-hmm. maturity differences I think would be the the biggest concern. But I I mean, McDavid and Crosby I guess could probably handle you know well they did handle guys that were almost 
five, six inches taller than him, 40, 50 pounds heavier at that age. It's just, I, I don't know if you'd see that on that entire team, those McDavid's and Crosby's. And in some ways you might actually stunt a little bit of development and growth, but, but overall I agree that, that Zach has probably hit the nail on the head that, you know, a showcase um, team, I guess, I don't know how you would term it would be ideal. I think there just needs to be a little bit of figuring out, you know, weight, height, maturity, um, when you're going against these older athletes. And it doesn't necessarily have to be all against OHL and QMJHL and WHL teams, because you're right, not all of these 15 and 16-year-old kids are going to be able to compete against these 20-year-olds. Yeah. But if you're telling me a top, like one of the top 25, 15-year-old or 16-year-old Canadian players in the country can't compete against, you know, a junior B or even a junior A team. So you got to look oh. outside of just the, uh, the CHL, and I think there's definitely potential there for some good games of hockey to be played in the growth that we want to see be there. So, yeah, and, I think you're right. Yeah. Well, even just sticking on the topic of the world juniors and, and minor hockey and how invested fans are. And I was talking about ruining the next 48 hours for me. I, I noticed that you two kind of got into a little bit of a squabble on social media. Uh, was it on the spitting chicklets Instagram in the comment section on some photos? You want to elaborate <laughs> on that? Oh, geez. I think Zach started it off. So Let's I pull think up the comments. The yeah, I was gonna say. I did. Zach, I Zach, definitely did start it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he had something like 170 likes on his comment in the first like 25 minutes of it. It was, it was wild. Just disgruntled Canadians stacking up likes. Oh yeah, and like yeah. the Americans too, like just hopping on and like dogging Zach and like giving him a hard time about it. I, I okay, actually turned off that. all my social media for that night. I, and even the next day, I just I just looked at Twitter today and there were still residuals and I was just pissed on <laughs> I was like, oh, man. Well, Canada may have lost off the ice, but I th- or on the ice, but I think we're winning off the ice, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So, yeah, so I made a comment on the Spit and Chicklets Instagram. For those of you that don't know, it's probably the largest hockey podcast out there. Obviously, our main competitor. Uh, they they came out with a shirt that said USA hockey is do or die on the front of it, which is kind of the U S national team development program slogan slogan. And then on the back of the shirt, it has USA versus Canada, the dates of the last, uh, four gold medal games and the scores as well. Unfortunately, USA has won all those games, but I made a comment and I said, I said, sick. The U S won their fifth gold medal, only 13 more to catch Canada. This was literally Within minutes after the game, I was rattled. Mm-hmm. Got uh, sitting at 291 likes right now. And then there's like 40-something comments here. And people started getting a little bit uh, upset with me. And then I did the Canadian thing, and I just killed them with kindness. So I'll read some of the uh, some of the comments here. So this one guy says, go to bed, hater. And I said, just a friendly reminder, all love, Gigi. Congrats on the win, boys. And then there were more comments. Like this one guy says, down bad. He has a SoundCloud link in his bio, so I, on his uh, Instagram bio. So I just clicked on his SoundCloud, and I was, I was really hoping it was going to be trash, but it was actually some fire beats. So I replied to him. And I was like, "Just checked out your SoundCloud, bro. It's sick. Keep up the grind, my guy. Congrats on the dub." And then like the praying emoji. Uh, another one. Uh, Did he respond? Sheesh, buy me dinner first or what? No, he followed me. He followed me on Insta. He followed me. He hit me with the he follow. followed you. Yeah, he followed me. He replied, let me find this guy's reply. He said, uh, hey, thanks, bro. All love. Canadian flag, handshakes, America, and a red heart. <laughs> so, you know, it's pretty serious if this guy's throwing a red heart my way. Like, I expect maybe like a blue or like no, a he green. wants like the unit. Yeah. He, want, he wants the one and dime. 
Yeah. yeah, you're getting a Christmas card too, eh? Probably. I hope I get like a nice picture of the family or something like that. <laughs> and then this one guy, this one guy frustrated me a little bit. I didn't necessarily, I didn't chirp him back, but I used some logic. Came at him with a logic. So this guy comments, he tags me, he goes, at Z Reigns, sick. When's your last Stanley Cup? Question mark. We own you. Own is Worse, all caps. I, I, that's the we stupidest argument I see you. all the time. Yeah, it's, it's a joke. So I said to him, dude, from a strictly analytical perspective, the probability of an American team winning the cup far outweighs that of a Canadian team. However, the number of Canadians in the league far outweigh that of any of any other country. Justifying national success in the sport using the location of the last team to win a Stanley Cup is delusional when the largest percentage of players were Canadian on the roster. Once again, even if we look a year prior, we see the St. Louis Blues had 18 Canadians on their roster. Each country is excellent in hockey. The States does not come close to owning Canada. And then this guy made a couple more comments, very actually derogatory co- uh, comments to Canada. So I had to come out and defend the homeland here. This, this guy says, same guy, Canada has contributed zero, all caps to society. This guy loves throwing all caps in the middle of his sentences. So I said to him, that's very uneducated and presumptuous of you. I assume you sent that message on a mobile phone. A Canadian invented the telephone. Alexander Graham Bell, you heard of him? The actual man that invented the light bulb and sold it to Edison was Canadian. Ever heard of basketball? Yeah, Canada invented that. You have any diabetics in your family? You can thank Canada for insulin. But none of that really ever contributed to society. Dot, dot, dot. Like, there's just a, you're, most you're, of the guys you're after. You're a deep rabbit hole right now. <laughs> I oh, love dude. it. Yeah, well, the comments section got a little bit ridiculous, and I had to uh, defend my, my homeland or our homeland as best I could. God bless, man. God bless. I'm yeah. assuming, reader, you had some comments where they had the same structure. You came in with you went heat. personal. No, he went personal. Nick, read some of yours. Yeah, like there was one guy. Um, uh, let me find what he said. Oh, he said um, Canadians backpedaling. So he tagged Zach and he said Canadians backpedaling so fast tonight they can make it into another sport. So then I, I was just getting frustrated because like some of the comments are just like absolutely absurd. So I just picked this one guy and I was like, you seem like the type of guy who Googles chirps before bed. It's past your bedtime. Enjoy the basement. <laughs> so I was hey, kind of hey, like, don't, take, base- living in yeah, basement, don't yeah. take basement shots here, man. That's a sensitive topic on this That's podcast. Strike one. That's strike one. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, mute you. we'll mute you. Get him off. <laughs> well, there was a, there was another guy. Uh, some, he made like some comment about like, oh, oh he can't. He commented about your wife. Oh, I was going to read the Idaho guy first with the glasses and the hoodie. I thought that was pretty <laughs> funny. So this guy comments. I can't find his comment, but says something just absolutely ridiculous. Oh, there we go. The Idaho goes, guy? Yeah. He goes, add Z Reigns. We're talking about this year. Loser, stop living in the past. So I, t- I added this guy and I go, you're wearing sunglasses and a hood in your Instagram profile picture. How ugly could you possibly hear your be? You're definitely the real winner here. Kick rocks home, buddy. So, Yo, this that one rattled me, eh? Because he's got air traffic controller in his bio, and as you guys know, I'm a pilot. So I was like, "Man, we got to stick together." And then there's like another maintenance engineer, like an aircraft maintenance engineer, that was chirping me. I was like, "Boys, we need love in the aviation industry right now. Everybody <laughs> love everybody." I was getting rattled. I was so sad. And well, what was what was on about your wife? So this is this is the last one. This one kind of got me fired up. He said, uh, "Talk about a chirp when all you got is grammar and, and meat stick." What are we in eight? You nice try, bud. And then he like made a comment about uh, my wife, and then he said, uh, "And talk your feelings." My wife. Like, yeah, you seem tense, my guy. So I got pretty rattled. I said, "Big tough guy coming after my wife." Meanwhile, your multi-level marketing scheme is in your bio with three underscores in your username. Plus, I'd rather yeah. get a 
sexual activity from my smoke show wife the name my left and right hand so i can pretend to get some have a good night make sure you mix in some names that's a zinger i'll give that yeah. one too that was the zinger. guy did have an, his wife's arbon link in his instagram bio which is <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing i've ever seen if i ever like if i ever get a wife here and I settle down and put my wife's arbon instagram link in my bio just come over guys come over <laughs> Find me, take my phone, throw it against a wall. The only thing worse would be your wife's OnlyFans fucking link. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Zach, Zach, the worst part is is it wasn't even his wife's or his girl's. It was his. No, it wasn't. It was a different name, I think. No, no, it was the same name. Who who was it? This Trey? I won't say his name. Oh, no. Oh, he deleted it. (laughs) (laughs) No, he did it. (laughs) <laughs> Dude, the link's not in his bio anymore. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, you, shook, you shook him to the core, man. You're an internet bully. Oh, uh, go to a safe space. Oh, he's a uh, he's probably in uh, you know he's obviously in America with you, and and I know Zach wanted to speak about the United States, and you're probably oh, better oh. versed than both of us about the events that transpired yesterday. So how about you give us a rundown, Reed? No, no, no. We're not done with the World Juniors yet. No, no I just, I just want to wrap up. You want to keep going on the, on the World Juniors? Yeah, because there's two hilarious things that we need to touch on. Finland oh, and Russia, know. they played in the uh, bronze medal game together. And it was not, not necessarily the friendliest game. That night, they took a charter flight back to Europe together. I think that's just hilarious. That's awful. And then the that's next... Brutal. Yeah, that, that is... Could you imagine that plane? Like, what happens if a fight breaks out and they have to, like, divert the plane to, like... I don't know, go land somewhere, get a separate charter. Stop and same answer, thing, yeah. like, like a couple American and Canadian players that play for Southern uh, California NHL teams, they're going off to their training camps. And the two teams, the LA Canes and the Anaheim Ducks, split a private jet together and put their players on the private jet. the worst. And it's so, I, I find That's it so cheap too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's- That's brutal. So you got Turcotte, Zgrass, Kaliev, and Barnford, or Jornford, I don't know how you say his name. It's like, it's a Swedish name. but Bjornford, I think. Bjornford, yeah, very American. And uh, Drysdale and Byfield had to share a PJ to SoCal. Like, that's that's brutal. I feel so bad for for Byfield and Drysdale. If those guys were, like, selling on a plane, man, it's just a disrespectful move. But I, I just wanted to mention that because I think that is absolutely insane. But, yeah, Hein, take us away into the political talk here. Uh, yeah, well, I, I kind of just want to hear from, from Reed. He's down in the U.S. He's obviously – surrounded by a little bit more got more american news outlets probably paying attention to so give us a rundown for pretend no one has any someone listening has no idea what happened yesterday what happened yesterday with the white house on capitol hill oh man yesterday was a pretty wild day in uh u.s politics um so um trump's been on twitter kind of like not antagonizing but like he's definitely been instigating some you know trying to instigate some critical thinking that is maybe um, weighed a little bit on the side of conspiracy theory regarding the election. Um, Anyways, he held this march um, and essentially the message was like, stop the steal. So there's belief among certain sections of the Republican party and and including Trump himself that um, there, there was widespread voters, voter fraud, which, you know, it was there widespread probably not was there a little bit probably but i i would anticipate that in almost any election you know somebody coming in and you know sending in their you know 
father who has Alzheimer's uh, ballot or something and, um, and voting for their candidate. But um, anyway, so he's, he's having this rally and they start to march up to the Capitol to protest because the, so in the U S in order to certify the electoral college, the Senate and the house have to meet and uh, they have to do like a roll call and certify all the States, whatever. Anyway, uh, Trump supporters uh, decided that today would be a good day to um, storm the Capitol and interrupt it. And uh, a few, um, I don't want to say um, crazy people, but it's essentially what they were. Extremists um, of sorts. Yeah. Got into the Capitol and put the Capitol on lockdown. Like, like they evacuated all the representatives, all the senators, everybody out. And a lady actually, <clears throat> excuse me was shot and killed she 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 was shot and killed um storming the capitol and i just it was absurd and and as somebody who identifies as a conservative and and um did and would support trump i I, it's just crazy to think that there are people who have you know kind of the same beliefs as me but would be so extreme and actually go and do that because the big thing for conservatives is like peacefulness and protesting peacefully and challenging and law enforcement support and and there was none of that yesterday and 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 it really really i think took a big shot against republicans and conservatives because we love a peaceful transition of power that is the beauty of the u.s government is you can have a differing of opinion and there is a peaceful transfer of power and that was threatened yesterday and i and i think that um people need to realize that yes it while it is horrendously awful what occurred yesterday that is not the vast majority of conservative or republican supporters um and i i just urge people who are listening to recognize that yesterday was sad it was an awful day but by the same token that doesn't represent you know the majority of trump supporters or conservatives or republican yeah no and it's it's very sad to see what happened yesterday because you know 95 90 95 percent of the people in the, in the u.s are, are quite normal they're normal supporters of even trump or you know of Biden in this case and harris and the sad part is is you have extremists that five to ten percent on, on both sides of the aisle whether it be far left antifa or far right proud boys as they like to be termed in in the media and they kind of make it really simple to kind of allow the media to continue this this degree of polarization in the country, right? I've talked about apple picking many times on this podcast. Uh, even on my political podcast, what the media likes to do is kind of take the most extreme instances and circumstances that have transpired uh, of the opposition party, whether it be a Trump supporter wearing a tinfoil hat, uh, talking about COVID being a hoax or someone on the far left doing something just as outlandish. And what it allows it to do is is to pump something like this in the media and kind of just increase that divide. And then you have people on the left, you know, believing that all Trump supporters are hillbillies. I've had family members reach out to me uh, to me today asking about it, what I, what I think. And that's kind of the rhetoric that I'm giving to them is you have to, it's so easy to fall into that narrative in the media. And we'll get into media a bit later, but it's just, it's so sad to see because it's, it's exactly what the media wanted and it's exactly what they need to just continue the divide and further the divide. Uh, I don't I don't see an end of this happening with the Biden administration. I think if anything, it's going to get you know, even more polarized down in the United States. I think America really needs uh, the right candidate. I don't think Trump or Biden are the right people to really mm-hmm. bring together such a divided country right now. And I think something that also might help the country. If we take a look at the political scene in Canada, we have 
a lot. We have a lot of political parties. So we've got like the Green, Liberals, NDP, Conservative, Party of Canada, um, Bloc Québécois. What else? What am I missing here? So yeah, People's Party ones. of Canada, NDP, Liberals, Conservative, Greens, pretty irrelevant, but and you got the Rhinoceros Party of Canada. Love that one. <laughs> what, what's that one? Party of Canada too. Uh, I'll answer you in a sec. What are you saying though, Nick? Isn't there like a marijuana party in Canada? Yeah, I think too? there is. But the Rhino Party is just, it's been a party around for years, Zach. And they're just, they're actually like technically a party. They're registered as a party. You can vote for the Rhinoceros Party, but it's just a joke. Crazy. So there's a communist party of Canada too, for crying out loud. Jeez. The, yeah. So the thing with the Canadian political spectrum is there are so many more options other than in America where you've got the Democratic, the Republican Party, and I've a very weak independent kind of uh, following. Whereas in Canada, you've got your liberals, which could be looked at as sort of our Democrats, our conservatives, which could be looked at as Republicans. Although I really don't think the liberal party or the Republic or the uh, conservative party in Canada have are as far left or right of center as the democratic and Republican parties are. I think in Canada politics and our politicians are very close to center on many different topics. And I think that's very good for inclusivity in, in Canada and people are able to kind of say like, yeah, I'm, I'm a conservative supporter or I'm a liberal supporter. And like, we're not balking at them. Whereas if a, a Republican says to a Democrat, like, yeah, I'm, I'm a Trump supporter. I'm a Republican that the Democrat might balk at them or vice versa. I think that, do you guys think that it would benefit the American political spectrum to have more options, more candidates. Like look at, uh, we've got Aaron O'Toole. We've got Jagmeet Singh. We've got Justin Trudeau, uh, Elizabeth May. There's so many different options for voting in Canada where it's way easier to kind of find something that fits your political ideologies and your mindset and stuff like that. Whereas in America, you're, you really face two options and it's, it's tough because it turns into a 50, 50 battle. And uh, I think it just really divides the American people and their political spectrum into two separate entities. Whereas in Canada, you don't really see that divide. You see everyone's kind of, we're on the same page in Canada for the most part. So yeah, you, it's a, it's a good, a good question. That? I actually talked to Nick yesterday on his podcast about this. So I know where he stands. So I'll, I'll chime in quickly because I, I know he has a different opinion. Uh, I'm with you. I, I think it's time in the United States for a third party to be introduced. Uh, obviously, the degree to which, or I should say the financial backing to which it takes in the United States to run a campaign. And you have to think of the three levels of government, right? It's, it's billions and billions and trillions of dollars, I'd imagine. Um, so it's almost far-fetched, right? Because we there's no one out there really that we, we, can, we can see or that comes to mind that would be able to collectively get that money together. And people are going to say, oh, the billionaires, the billionaires could do it. Well, the billionaires are a lot of the times in bed with some of the politicians, right? Or their industries or their primary sources of income or their businesses are heavily tied to, to regulation that requires lobbying and requires good relationship with lawmakers. So it's not that black and white, but I do think a third party that was around the center and obviously in a perfect world, it would stay around the center, but it's not, it wouldn't, it would, it would either veer left or right, uh, depending on the tide. But no, I'm of the mind that it does make sense to have a third party. Canada, there's there's takeaways from it, and there you know there's downsides to it, like any system in Canada. As you said, we don't tend to balk at each other as frequently. But I have personally felt that it's changed a little bit in terms of that. I feel I feel hesitant to admit that I'm historically conservative now, uh, because I, I feel like even through the Donald Trump era, 
there is a negative connotation that's being brought about conservatism in, in Canada in and of itself. So I've actually been hesitant myself to even include that on job applications. I, I've been applying for jobs for, for quite a while now. And I actually took off my experience with the Ontario uh, Progressive Conservative Party off there. And funny enough, I actually started to get some bites uh, whilst it was off my application, which was quite alarming to me. Uh, someone told me, maybe take that off. And I said, why would I take that off? It shows practical experience. Uh, valuable experience, even in the business world, I took it off and, you know, shocker that I actually got more traction, which is pretty crazy to me, but I'll throw it over to Nick. I know he has a totally different take than, than what you and I are thinking. Yeah. Like obviously, ideally, you know, if there, if this third party could say stay center, I would absolutely maybe actually, I can't say absolutely. I would consider a third party my fear is is you bring a third party into the u.s political system like brain said it is going to swerve left or right it is nearly impossible for the, for the party to stay uh center now <clears throat> the other concern i have too is if you look at u.s politics typical democrats and republicans are a lot more alike than they are different where you get the opposite extremes in the party is where you get the aocs of the world and the uh, Ilhan Omar's of the world and I fear that that would be the group that would separate and it would give a voice to certain policies that one don't promote American ideals or uh, um, uh, support you know free market capitalism and all that kind of stuff which allows for America to be the, the power that it is and once that happens and once you really truly depend on their votes to pass any sort of legislation, you are going to cater to their wants and needs. And the other concern I have, too, is then you get into the Canadian situation, which happens very frequently with uh, minority governments. And you are really dependent on other parties to pass any sort of legislation. Is that bad, though? That might be a good thing. Well, so do you want... I mean, Braden and I were talking about it yesterday on my podcast. Um, there's certain things that, you know, the NDPs believe in that are fundamentally un-Canadian. That like mm -hmm. if if you were to if you were to sit back and really study and and read up on their policies, you, you're not gonna agree with everything they say or everything they do. Um, but the thing with the minority government is if they have those, you know, those things that are basically go against the rest of the core Canadian values or whatever you want to say, uh, they're not going to be able to institute those those decisions and those rules and laws and stuff, right? So is, right. is the minority government that bad of a, a thing, whereas you can with the, the American political spectrum? Well, so so my rebuttal to that would be, okay, so I say no to the NDP on one subject, but I need their vote for something to pass major legislation in the House. And then they, because I said no on one subject, they boycott the vote or they vote against it with like the liberals if the conservatives are in power or the vice versa like it's 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 too it's a very fine line that you need to tiptoe in a uh multi-party system um whereas in the american system i feel you have the senate which Braden and i discussed as well that that they they can like filibuster it so they can they can choose not to table something and and i think that that has its pros and has its cons but it does sort of have that check that a minority party a third party would bring so can you explain the term filibuster for our listeners that maybe don't know because even i had to look it up yesterday i'm not too 
up on uh, American politics, but just kind of explain what that is for those that don't know. Well, Braden, do you want do you want to bring it up because you've been sitting there kind of quiet there for a couple seconds? Yeah, yeah, and I'll just add something quick to what you were saying. I just kind of substantiate your points, and I'd call Canadian more of like a tri-party system. We have three big parties, and you yeah. have you know little Quebec, like the Bloc Québécois is obviously relevant in Quebec, uh, but no other province in Canada, obviously. So you do see that, especially now in the current setting, minority government, you have the NDP in a position where they're not the actual opposition, not the official opposition, but they're a minority party, the third place party uh, with very little support actually from Canadians in, in the last election, even the previous X amount of years, especially after Jack Layton passed away. And you look at it and, and the problem with it is they're considered, I consider them quite far left. I think most Canadians would consider them quite far left. and Even liberals would consider them quite far left for the most part. And what that allows them to do is kind of play a bit of a bully in terms of you have a very small amount of Canadians that actually are behind what they're preaching. A very small amount of Canadians, right? Either the liberal conservative for the most part, and a lot of liberals, it's even too far left for them. But by having the three main parties and having them uh, you know, to the left of the liberal party, what it allows them to do is actually strong arm the liberals and bully them, which most Canadians, an alarming majority of Canadians between the conservative and liberal party are actually against. And that's the biggest problem with the tri-party system. So you're, you're essentially putting them in a position of power where their votes mean so much. And they're on a similar page to the Liberals. But most Canadians even think to themselves, you know what, that's a bit too much extreme. That's, it's too extreme for me. I don't like that. But it doesn't matter, right? They're, they're going to cater to, the, to their base and they're going to say, you know what, we still want this thrown in. And what you're seeing is a slow, gradual pull towards the left, more so than either Liberals or, or Conservatives want. Now, talking on the Senate... So there was two seats up for uh, re-election and uh, or for grabs, I should say, in Georgia the other day. Uh, and the Democrats actually won the two seats. And now with Kamala Harris as VP, she gets one vote in the Senate. So she's the tiebreak. They officially have 51 out of the 100 votes needed in the Senate to pass something technically. But how the filibuster works is so out of the 100 uh, Senate seats, you, you can and when a piece of legislation is tabled, rather, you can use a filibuster to continually discuss the legislation that's been tabled. So if use it's used in politics all the time to drag stuff out if they don't have a majority of 60 or more. So like so postpone a vote sort of? Yeah, so essentially uh, there's legislation that's gone through the House, it's in, in the Senate. But say the Democrats control the House, but the Republicans control the Senate, so they don't want this legislation passed. Essentially what they can use is this filibuster. So this filibuster is essentially just delaying it. They essentially table discussion and they continuously table discussion. And how the filibuster works is you need 60 votes of the Senate to end the filibuster. And there's no limit on this filibuster. So essentially, if something goes through the House and there's not enough Senate members, 60 or more, to end this filibuster, then essentially you can just drag on legislation, legislation, legislation as long as you want. And it won't go through. You can kind of just keep pushing it back as, as much as you can. So, okay. so that means that so that means that going forward, the Democrats now that they have those 50 seats, they're going to need 10 or I can't remember. Does does the VP have a vote during yep. a filibuster? Yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, so they need, oh, I think she does. Yeah, I think she does. They either need nine or 10 Republicans to come to their side to end a filibuster. And I know for a fact that there are probably five or six uh, sitting Republican senators that, that are um, very um, willing to work across the aisles a lot more than others. Mm -hmm. So so to see a filibuster end, you you possibly could see it but the likelihood is still kind of out um but, but the yeah. biggest problem is right there the democrats have actually tabled the possibility of actually abolishing the filibuster which would be 
very anti-institutionalist and, and yeah. very anti-American. There's even a Democrat by the name of, do you remember his name yesterday? I'm so uh, mad Manchin. 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 Yeah. Uh, yep. Representative Manchin, Senator Manchin. And he's actually an institutionalist. So he's against ending the filibuster even as a Democrat. Now, if he yeah. were to hold off, you could still keep the filibuster, but essentially if they wrangle enough support, they get rid of that filibuster the Democratic Party will control the three levels of government. So they'll have the House, the Senate, and the White House. They'll be able to pass whatever legislation they want. Does stuff still need to go through the Supreme Court after it passes through those three ranks? Or is that... No. No? There's, that's how it goes in Canada, right? But the Supreme Court, basically, stuff gets through the House of Commons. It, it essentially gets through uh, the Supreme Court as well. Or am I just talking out of my... I believe certain well, pieces of, of legislation and law and whatnot need to go into the Supreme Court, but to my understanding, they, it's not all of them. We have a Senate as well in Canada, so we have our House of Representatives yeah. and members of Parliament, and then we also have a Senate to uh, substantiate pieces of legislation. But one more thing on the Senate debacle, we should call it down in the U.S., there's something referring to budget reconciliation. So as I mentioned, you need 60 votes in the Senate to end a filibuster. So essentially, if you have 60 votes in the Senate, you can pass whatever piece of legislation you want. If you have, the Dems have 60, everyone's on board, they could, it's a smooth path, smooth highway to legislation. Now with budget reconciliation, there's certain pieces of legislation they'd actually be able to pass with just a majority vote of just 51. So essentially anything to do with just revenue, it has to be revenue neutral, but revenue neutral and cabinet picks, the Democrats could still rush through. And actually in in Obama's, uh, last tenure of his four years, they actually used budget reconciliation to push through Obamacare. So though they don't have enough to necessarily abolish the filibuster right now or get over the hump of the filibuster, people need to watch watch out for even those 51 votes is big enough to push them th- some things through with budget reconciliation. I don't know if that was too much information, if I was rambling a bit too much. I, I hope you, did you no, follow it a bit? It was good. Uh, you, you said something about checks as well, budget reconciliation and checks. Can you just explain that for, for the listeners? Yeah. So the premise with budget reconciliation is that uh, they're allowed, there has to meet certain criteria for things that are allowed to pass. Uh, so it has to be specific to costs to essentially the American economy and, and the people. So you can't institute something, uh, you know, a new fund for say a hot topic right now, gender neutral washrooms right? You couldn't push that through and then say, oh, that actually costs money. So it's, it's part of the budget, right? It's, or it's, it should fall under budget reconciliation. It doesn't work like that. It has to be something directly focused with money, so to speak in layman terms. Okay. Uh, it can't have anything to do with social security and it can't, there, there's a thing in the U S it's, it's evading me right now, the actual term for it, but they essentially, there's a, there's an organization that does 10 year projections on what the budget deficit's going to be. And part of the thing with the budget reconciliation as well is that it can't cause a deficit at that 10 year mark. Okay. So there's like, it gets quite technical. I don't want to get too mm-hmm. deep in the technicalities, but essentially I'm just saying to, to listeners now, though the Democrats don't have 60 votes in the Senate to kind of steamroll everything they want, there still is going to be probably a decent amount of legislation. They're going to be able to pass through under budget reconciliation, considering Obamacare was done under budget reconciliation. Yeah. Are there any examples of current uh, democratic uh, ideologies that you expect might go through that process? Uh, in terms of, it, it sounds outlandish to think, but in terms of immigration, uh, it could they could try and slip some stuff in immigration and, and allowing paving away for the illegal aliens. 
and I'm not using that in a derogatory sense. That's the actual term for them. The illegal <laughs> I was really the confused. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, like if you're in the States illegally, you're an illegal alien in the U S um, a <laughs> pathway for citizenship. Uh, I was actually listening to Shapiro. I like to get his take. He's a bit more right wing than I am for sure. Who is I that? Liked, uh, ben Shapiro. He's a, oh, okay, uh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. I like to listen to him sometimes. He gives a good perspective on, on further right than I am. And he was talking about, you know, if Obamacare could be swindled through, through budget reconciliation, and there's a chance that they could try something like that on, on, the, on the lines of immigration. Now, I don't know if Nick has anything else on his mind pressing. I could be off with that, but that's what I've heard. No, I think I think the big the big hot topic is immigration because you you've seen the last four years. You know, build the wall. The yeah. and amnesty the, was the word I was looking for. By the way, amnesty yes. pushing amnesty through there. <laughs> yeah, um, but as I was saying, you know. You, you saw a big push on building the wall and, and a real big emphasis on ensuring that all immigrants are legal immigrants. Um, and, and you know, you saw a lot of issues occurring with the DACA programs and stuff like that in the United States. And, you know, these um, Mexican coyotes bringing kids across and getting a, a pathway to citizenship. Is that, that a, that Mexican coyotes, is that like a normal term as well? Or what, like, what yeah, does that mean? Yeah. So, so the Mexican coyotes kind of are like kidnappers. So, so they, so they'll like bring a family and they'll um, take a, take the kid and leave the, the parents behind and claim the child as their own. Yeah. So like okay. the actual definition, like he's hundred percent, but I'll give you the actual definition just so you have a point blank, a person who smuggles Latin Americans across the U S border, typically for a high fee. And then as so you're talking would, about with children, that tends to happen sometimes. So this would yeah. be like an American uh, legal citizen that, basically smuggles people across the border for money it could be either a citizen or it could either, be yeah. you know a mexican or any latino yeah. american that's not actually a citizen just whether it be by bus or you know under any underground tunnel i'm not talking literally underground but any tunnel into the u.s so okay. well and and the concern is is that you're going to have with the democratic party coming in is you're going to see higher rates of that the um uh, American border services have actually already detained. I think, I think the percentages are already up 20, 30% since Biden won of detainees at the border entering illegally because everybody knows that when the Democrats come through, the first big thing that they're probably going to do other than maybe some healthcare stuff is a lot of work on immigration policies and um, legalizing, you know, illegal immigrants and stuff. Um, and, you know, Republicans, I have no problem with the immigrants. My, I'm I'm in the immigration process right now, but um, my concern is is you're going to see legal immigrants kind of being pushed to the back of the line so that they can handle the influx of these people coming across the border through the Mexican coyotes and stuff like that, um, and getting sort of an accelerated access to the U.S. system. Nick, can you talk a little bit about your experience uh, with the American immigration system? Because obviously immigration is a hot topic in the United States of America, whereas it's not in in Canada as hot of a topic, at least. Uh, is it difficult to become a uh, citizen of the United States of America? Is there, do you think it should be, you know, easier for people to become a citizen of the United States of America? Because everyone talks about the American dream. And uh, the fact of the matter is the quality of life in some other countries is far below that of America. So why wouldn't we, or why wouldn't you guys as Americans want people to be able to also live the American dream, contribute to your society and your economy? So right. why is so, it such a difficult process to become an yeah. American citizen? 
So, so just to start, so the, the, the process that I'm going through, um, don't want to get too much in depth because it is a pending immigration case, but essentially, um, my wife and I, um, have applied for what's called an adjustment of status. And basically it, it takes me from being a visitor to a, uh, permanent resident. And then that puts me on the path to be a citizen, but I'm still five years down the line from becoming a citizen. Um, the concern that I think a lot of Americans have is when you're when you're accepting immigrants, the societal changes that occur on such a broad scale um, scare people. And if you, they come through legally, you know they they have to have a certain set of skills and standards that are coming into the U.S. because the U.S.'s biggest thing is. That they wouldn't let me into the U.S. if um, I came in, got my citizenship, and then the next day I was um, going on unemployment. Right. Right. You, so you that that's right th that is the concern is is you're going to get these immigrants that come in. America loves loves um, despite popular belief from from what I've experienced in my little less than a year in the United States. From what I've experienced, people love people regardless of where they're from what they do their political ideologies it's when you you really start to have those conversations and you you bring stuff up that the issues occur but my point is is that it's not we don't want immigrants to come is we want immigrants to come one legally and two that that are willing to work and contribute it doesn't mean that you have to be a rocket scientist and work for nasa but if you come in and you and you get in legally and you say hey i want to go be a a janitor at Costco and and make my money that way or or I want to be a school teacher or I want to you know uh, work on a farm like we love that we love people coming in our concern is is you get the people coming in and they get their citizenship or their residency and they immediately go on unemployment and live off the government for their entire yeah. life because the government gives them so much and, and we're looking at upwards of 11 plus million people that would be put on a path right now to citizenship yeah. Uh, just think about that in terms of social security, what that actually costs the American people is, is insane because you'd essentially have to be supporting them through the process, right? Uh, yeah. Through the documentation process, uh, that costs a fortune in and of itself. Then of those people that aren't going to be able to find jobs, now, now they're American uh, citizens, well, there comes the social security. So, and I, I don't know people listening are going to say, well, there's more to life than just money. Uh, yes, I agree with you 100% full heartedly, but money does make the world go round, especially in a capitalist uh, society, like heavily dominated society like the United States. And I believe that the United States, it's their prerogative to be concerned about that, right? With such an, an important economy in the world and a staple of the world economy, we'll call it, uh, and the importance to which it holds for everyone in the world, uh, I believe it's it's fully within their power to, to be wary of letting so many people in and, and the cost that it's actually going to put on the taxpayers. Okay, so uh, my question to that is the cost, you mentioned the cost is going to put on the taxpayers. Won't that cost uh, eventually kind of overturn itself and become a benefit to the taxpayers? Because you're going to have more citizens paying taxes and stuff like that. So what's, uh, I don't know if there's a way to find projections on the number of immigrants that come into the United States that go on to EI versus that become taxpayers. If the number, like where's the the line? Is it beneficial? Well, for to America yeah. to let more people in because they're taxpayers and it helps the 
the bottom line as far as taxes go, or is it caught? Is it a cost to the American taxpayers? Like which one is it? Is it a benefit or is it detrimental? Well, you have to think uh, the type of person that is going to be an illegal alien and actually not going through the process in the United States. What would that profile be? It would be someone that's trying to escape probably from Mexico or the Latin American countries, right? Probably a lack of education. I won't say for all of them, um, but they didn't have most likely didn't have the the means to get into the country legally. They didn't have the means to acquire a job in the United States legally, uh, you know, get a work visa legally, and then apply for citizenship citizenship in a way that they were going to be paying taxes and contributing to the population from the get go. So essentially, you can think I would, and this could be a liberal estimate of say seventy percent of them. Okay, uh, don't have an education, uh, don't really have applicable skills to a, a society of that magnitude in terms of you know developing tech and engineering and et cetera, et cetera you know, 70% of those people would be a burden for years to come. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, Nick mentioned, like, if they come in with a plan, they want to be a, a janitor at Costco, that's okay. So I, I think you would see a ton of people coming in, maybe opportunities <clears throat> in uh, Latin American countries are fewer as far as education goes. But would there I mean, look at the labor aspects of things. Could they be some excellent general laborers? And obviously I'm generalizing there saying yeah. as, a, as a majority, but. But I agree. Uh, I disagree with Nick, actually. I think that coming in the United States and, and especially I'm speaking from an American perspective here, uh, the protectionism that's been instilled, especially over the last course of I'll say 10 years, not even just with Donald Trump, the protectionism that has started to sprout up in the United States through a lot of the populist viewpoints. Um, you have people that are uneducated in the United States that would fit those roles and that can't fit those roles because there's not enough of those roles. So as an American person, you're struggling to find work. You're uneducated yourself and you can't even get hired as a janitor at Costco. Why would you want these people that don't have any education that are going to be a burden on the system to come in and take that job away from you at Costco? Right. And, and I think that's the concern and that's the line that you have to toe. It's the, you have unemployment, which in the past under the past administration was at all time lows um so th that it, and Braden hit the nail on the head that's the concern if you bring if you bring in a ton of immigrants um and you um give them status and you give them all this stuff are they going to take away from jobs that other americans are currently doing because one they'll do it cheaper potentially um, well, that's again, an issue generalizing, generalizing. if you look at that that's an issue on the american government that's minimum wage, right? Increase minimum wage if you don't want people doing it cheaper. Well, the other thing, the the issue with increasing minimum wage is the second you increase minimum wage, all your goods and services are going to increase because you, uh, inflation. Yeah. Are, well, yeah, inflation, but also businesses are going to have to account for that increase in labor costs. And the labor cost isn't going to be footed by the manager or the owner. It's going to be footed by the consumer. That's and, uh, yeah. Yeah. And in doing that, you're you're going to actually hurt the um, consumers, which will hurt the economy, which will then drive businesses down and increase your unemployment and increase all those negative aspects of a quote unquote capitalist society. Yeah. It's very interesting. So, I don't mean to cut you off, but yeah, that's a state issue. I believe down in the States is not going uh, yeah, to state. And it's, and it's very state. intricate, right? Because you essentially have to take minimum wage should be tied to the consumer price index and that can be, yep. you know, debated whether or not. And then it ties into inflation. It's very intricate. And I understand what you're saying hundred percent. And I actually is a, that's a very good point, Zach, because it is a problem. And there's actually the, why, why some Republicans are scared is because they believe that they could probably find nine or 10 uh, Republican senators that share that same 
animosity uh, regarding illegal immigration taking away from those base level jobs because you have yeah. some of those people in the southern states coming over and they think that it would actually be a way to capture the Latino vote is by reforming immigration. So, no, very good point there. And I want to table something to the both of you because I don't want to sound like I'm anti immigration. I'm so pro-immigration. I, I think it's wonderful. And these countries are, are wonderful because of immigration, um, especially from those Latino countries. And I'm actually very pro uh, allowing the dreamers to stay, the kids that were smuggled over, raised here, know nothing else. Uh, I'm right. very pro setting paths for them for immigration because, you know, to, to me, they're American. They've grown up here. They know nothing else. They're American. Now, what do you two think? We'll start with you, Zach. What do you think of the dreamers? Should, should they be or what do you think on both? What do you think on the immigration reform? Do you think it should be all 11 plus million or do you think it just should just be the dreamers? Okay, so I've got, uh, I pulled up some education stats here actually, okay. uh, just to kind of talk about what you guys are saying as far as uh, uneducated immigrants. You are going to see that at a higher level. And that's, that's a fact that the average, and let's go, the majority of illegal immigrants are Mexican. That's Mm-hmm. We're not speculating. We're not making anything up there. That's I love just Mexico. A, so a fact. Beautiful, beautiful place. Beautiful people. Tulum, Seventeen Tulum, point boys. Tulum. Oh, yeah. Seventeen point four percent of uh, the Mexican population between the ages of twenty five to sixty four have a post secondary level of education, kind of at any level. That's mm-hmm. college, university, anything. If we go look at the Americans. Uh, 46.4% of Americans have post-secondary education. So you see a swing there of 29%. Yeah, exactly. 29%. Math guy. Wow. Yeah. You like that? That wasn't bad. That guy. That guy. And then if you look at the Canadian population, just throwing it out there as well, 56.7% of uh, Canadians receive post-secondary education. And that's, uh, and 69% actually in Ontario receive a post-secondary education. So it's Holy just kind of some hey. interesting uh, facts and stats there as far as education goes between the, mm-hmm. the three countries there. And I think it kind of goes towards uh, looking at education standards and accessibility to education it becomes mm-hmm. a bit of a problem there. Right. But just to answer your question, touching, I don't want to get too much into education on this episode, but touching on uh, immigrants, I think that anybody should have the opportunity to a better life if they're willing to better their life. I don't think anybody should ever be allowed to come to a country that, uh, you know, isn't their homeland and take free money from the government for Mm -hmm. an extended period of time. Obviously there is likely going to be a transition period. And I think that's absolutely acceptable, but if you get these 11 million uh, illegal immigrants right now and they come into the country and they uh, say they're on subsidies for a year or two or whatever the the term is those subsidies they need to have an end point for sure and then at that point they need to be able to contribute to the american society whether it's uh, like a subsidy to education or something like that i think that 11 million people are going to be able to come into a country and really benefit the country whether it's whether there's obviously a lot of things to look at you can't can't be ever giving handouts to people whether it's a citizen or not. That's exactly why, for example, employment insurance in Canada, you can't be on it for your entire life. You can't just sit at home and, and take free money from the government. You have to work. And I think that's core value. Well, here's a side uh, question. Any country. Here's a side question for you. What you got? So this is probably going to be tabled. The Biden administration is going to start on the 25th, I believe. 
So within the next four the years, 20th, 20th, 20th. So in the next four years and probably, and I think one of his, his top priorities was actually immigration reform. So you have a country now that, that right now that's struggling through coronavirus. We have, we're in a recession right now and we're coming back. Do you think this is the time? So you're pro allowing the 11 million people in, you know, that's totally your right to have that. Opinion. As long as they benefit. The yeah, society. Exactly. But you know, even going through that I and mean, seeing if they do would cost so much time and money, but say, say they, they all do in, in some sense, but it's going to cost a shit ton of money. You're going to have to support them, most of them for a few years. Do you think now is the time when Americans are struggling? Uh, they can't pay their rent. They can't put food on their own tables. Do you think now is the time to focus on letting immigrants in rather than helping your own people? I don't necessarily think it's the time to be letting them in, but it might be the time to revisit the current immigration system in the United States. Like there obviously are issues with the system mm-hmm. um, and there could be changes that are, need to be made or can be made to kind of better the current system. And I think that's something that the American uh, people should look at. Uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, you want to see people coming into your country uh, with different cultures and values and stuff mm-hmm. like that. We don't care about any of that as long as they benefit the society as a whole. Right. And I think that's the I main agree. thing that you need to look at. It might be more difficult to benefit the society right now because there are less opportunities due to COVID-19. And I think that gets into looking at, uh, you know, a level of support from the yeah, government. As but well. definitely so, some reform right now could be good. I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. What, what are you thinking? Yeah, no, I just, I just want to clarify something here. Um, Braden said it loud and clear. We are not, anti-immigration we i well i shouldn't say we i am not anti-immigration Braden's not anti-immigration but i want everybody to come through legally i want them new you have to invest in my opinion in order to to receive the benefits you need to be willing to put something out there to show that you're here for all the right reasons do you you know so I think that at the end of the day, Zach, you hit the nail on the head too with a little bit of reform and taking a look at it right now because of how polarized it is. I think it needs to be reassessed. I've, I've said that since the beginning of, of the prior administration. Um, and I think I think everything needs to be looked at and tabled. My only concern is, is with trying to bring those 11 million people onto a path to citizenship and stuff. What happens to people like me who are sitting in the immigration process right now the u.s government has already cut their um uh border immigration people in half there's already been major cuts there so my my status is already delayed even further so in what order are you going to start processing all of those um applications how how are you going to um distribute funding obviously you you don't have the answer you don't have anything like that but but that would be my question going forward because Mm -hmm. i agree it needs to be revisited and needs to be reassessed but what do you do for the rest of everybody else yeah that's a that's a great question as you said we don't have the answer and and kind of the last thing i wanted to touch on with politics we've gone politics heavy is what do you guys think about athletes speaking their mind on politics and using their platform uh when you know, it's easy to see in the population, people think and vote with their feelings in terms of politics, right? You could ask someone on the street why they dislike someone or why they're voting for someone. And I'd say a good chunk of people aren't going to give you concrete answers, right? They'll kind of beat around the bush a little bit. Now, Kyle Lowry recently came out and called for Trump to be charged. You love Lowry, eh? (laughs) I can't stand Kyle Lowry. Uh, No, I don't actually dislike Kyle Lowry. I'm not a big on his playing, but I'm just, I'm kind of curious what you guys, what you guys think. I'd yeah, I'm going to hear your takes first, and then I'll, I'll kind of sprinkle mine in there. I'll hop into it to start. Uh, these athletes, 
any athlete really has a, a platform and a voice. And I think that if you don't use your platform and a, a voice to do your best to create positive change, then I think you shouldn't have that platform or voice. Like obviously there's uh, differing opinions and stuff like that. And everyone is entitled to their opinion. Um, but I think that it's pretty general as far as the society or societal terms and norms and stuff, what people view as right and wrong. I think that it's all relatively similar in the grand scheme of things. And I think that uh, or athletes using their voices to promote what's right and wrong is, is excellent. Like if you look yeah. at the uh, like black lives matter in the NBA, that is absolutely incredible. And I think those athletes have every right to use their voices as much as they want and use their platform as much as they want. It's no different than a celebrity. People are saying, uh, well, you just shut up, like go play your sport why doesn't that person shut up and go, you know, file taxes or do whatever they do as a, like on a day-to-day basis, the same thing as us. If we said to, to an athlete, like, shut up and throw the ball, they could say the same to me, like shut up and fly a plane or shut up and, you yeah. know, trade yeah, some no, stocks. I, or something. I agree to a certain extent. I think uh, the media bias that we've kind of touched on a few times and that cancel culture limits what people could actually say. And I, I know we like to think that the moral structure of right and wrong is pretty much instilled in the culture. And I think it is to most people. But uh, having that minority cancel culture on social media is very dangerous, I think, with especially high profile people wanting to maybe speak more of their actual minds mm-hmm. uh, and touching on the Black Lives Matter thing on my on my other podcast, my politics podcast. I actually talked about the hypocrisy with that with some of the NBA athletes. I think it's great that they're in unity and, and taking a stance against police brutality and and for Black Lives Matter. I think that's amazing. Uh, the hypocrisy I didn't like is and it's on both sides of the aisle. And I talked about a whole episode about race. Actually, it was just them being reluctant to acknowledge the bad aspects of it too when they had the looting and some of the rioting and burning down buildings and and trashing stores they turned a blind eye to it right it was all focused on the uh, on this positive 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 they've been done wrong and you know i agree to a certain extent of course um but the problem i have with athletes speaking out a lot of the time I, i feel like it's first it's hypocritical and sometimes not always this this kyle lowry one's not hypocritical it's just an opinion but at the same time I know you were just saying, okay, go shut up and fly a plane, right? Like these people have been saying to athletes, we have to remember you don't have a big platform, right? Like you're not a person that's a political spokesperson. Hey, or, we get or, lots of listeners. We yeah, get we get lots lot, of listeners. I mean, yeah, that's we're a big, big platform <laughs> coming. But you know, the people like that are saying that are typically not these ones that are have these big platforms and big followings. Yeah. And the ones that typically do have those big platforms and big followings are, are well-versed and well-educated in the world of politics and legislation. And and they do their research on on matters like this, where I feel like, athletes though they've earned their platforms 100 they've earned it in a different way right so when you come out and you and you voice these opinions without maybe sometimes thinking it through entirely or failing to acknowledge you know certain hypocrisies in your own statements uh, it's dangerous at times because you do have a lot of the time young audiences that are in that same position where they're not quite invested in and doing their own research and looking into things you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. um, so what do you what do you both think on that maybe nick first because we let me touch on that before i lose my mind yeah i'm feeling it right now uh just as far as that goes i think that you mentioned the hypocrisy and kind of in some athletes and what they're saying and they're not not really mentioning the like the looting and rioting and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and i think that that's giving a power to a voice to a negative voice or something like that if you if you do mention that it's best to use your platform to draw on the positives and try your best to actually make change and making change. Like, obviously you need to condemn 
looting and rioting and, and no matter what it is, whether it's like if you look at Vancouver in 2011 when they lost to the Bruins, like that's absolutely insane. There's mm-hmm. no reason ever to, to loot or riot. Mm-hmm. Um, but change is, change is different sometimes. And I, it's tough. Like the looting, absolutely never. But rioting, like peaceful riots or peaceful protests is obviously ideal. And then you do get into the issue of like the National Guard showing up. And like, I think that those riots and those, well, those protests, nobody wanted those to turn into riots. It, it was a horrible situation in the United States. And I think everybody at the end of the day wants to see change and positive change with no negative you know, effects. But when you see change, sometimes you are going to see the negative effects. And for the most part, hopefully the positives outweigh the negatives. And I think in the case of Black Lives Matter, they absolutely did. Fair enough. Nick, what, what are your thoughts on everything that we've both said? I think it's, I think it's interesting um, because we had a riot and we had destruction of public property. And um, I don't know if you guys saw, but I, I posted something in your, in your city. No, 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 no. In, uh, in, in uh, DC. Okay. Oh, you're, talk- you're talking yesterday. Yeah. You saw that yesterday. And um, I, I don't know if you guys saw, but, uh, but I put a story on my Instagram um, essentially stating and denouncing um, pro- like this form of protest, this violence and destruction, um, because I was very, very much outspoken against uh, the rioting and looting that occurred uh, in 2020. Um, I think that a fundamental right of Americans is your your freedom to speak your mind whenever you want. I think there is a time and place, but um, it, it comes down to a matter of what do you think um, is, is more important, somebody's uh, ability to speak their mind or an ability to collect a paycheck. And I think that these athletes have a certain privilege because they don't have to worry about, you know, um, like Kyle Lowry's made over th- like a hundred million dollars in, in his career. Like he can come out and say whatever, say whatever he wants. Meanwhile, you know, you get, um, for example, the, the kid that got that sued CNN, you know, the, they went after a high school kid cause he stood in front of a guy with a tribal drum. Like, like I think that there's a sense of privilege that comes with these athletes nowadays. And, I'm all for them voicing their mind and voicing their opinion and protesting in whatever manner they see fit. But I think they also need to acknowledge that there is a lot of privilege that they have. Um, if you want to, if you want to talk about privilege, we have the most privileges, three white men, like at the end of the day, that's a fact. I'd say it is. And it isn't. I think some things have started to shift in society. And I've been talking about the job hunt for a while. And uh, when you have say 70% of a, people applying are going to be white men. Let's say, say you're applying for a business role statistically and business schools are becoming more and more even in terms of, in terms of gender dis- distribution. But say right now I'm applying for a job and, and it's 70% white men applying for a job. Okay. So there's 10 positions and you mm-hmm. have 30% minorities that are applying. So whether it be disabled, first nations, uh, a minority uh, race, uh, female, the classified under the Canadian uh, minority uh, banner, we'll call it. So say they have quotas now being set forth at a company that, you know, they want 50% hiring equality. So they're really pushing diversity in their hiring. Uh, first off, I want to, I want to preface this by saying diversity is a great strength, especially in corporations. There's actually scientific studies to show that uh, 
even I believe it's publicly traded companies with diverse boards are actually more profitable. So diversity is, is, yeah. it's been shown to pay. It's been shown to pay. Um, but say you have 70% applying for, so you have five roles going to, to non-minorities and five roles going to minorities, but you have 70% of the people are considered non-minorities. Okay. They're only there to fill up five spots. And then you have 30% of the applicants going to fill up five spots on their own. Well, what's it, what's it going to be harder for? to get an interview and to get the job. It's That's a really good point. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and I'm not saying that it's done maliciously. I don't think it is at all. Uh, I just, I'm of the opinion that, you know, diversity is our strength, but this is how I look at it. Our system right now is what we're doing is we're doing a crash diet, right? We're trying to force it into our system too aggressively, I think, right? And a crash diet, you're going to look great on the outside. I've lost so much weight. Look at me. Like I'm ready to go to the bars, start chatting some girls. Like I'm feeling great about myself. <laughs> But internally, my body's not too happy with myself because I've, I've shocked the system right. in a sense that's negative, right? Uh, for me, I think it's great to have diversity quotas that need to be met because as I just said, even if just talking purely economics, it's, it's, it's beneficial for companies. They'll be more profitable. Statistically, if you have diverse people working in the company and especially in this global international stage of business now, but at the same time, I don't think it's, it's fair to do it at the the pace that we're doing it now. I don't think it's actually going to be good for the system. Uh, I'd love using that crash diet analogy. It's uh, a good analogy. Yeah. I, I, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm pro diversity and stuff. And I, you know, we hundred percent have privilege. Mm -hmm. A Canadian has privilege. You know, if you're white, you have some level of privilege and it goes back historically, but at the same time, uh, and you hear this a lot, it's, well, why should I essentially be punished? And I'm throwing up quotations for or, or disadvantaged because of history, right? Like I wasn't around and oppressing people. And I know the two of you are very open and welcoming to, to other religions and other races, ethnicities and everything. Uh, and, and it's a good point. Like some people roll their eyes out and they're like, well, like just shut up, right? There's no rhetoric for it. But if you really sit back and wonder, you know, it's kind of just, I guess, what the world is, the history, right? It's the history and, and you know, black people could ask it the same about systemic racism and, and their communities and lack of investment and everything. And, and once again, I did a huge podcast episode on, on history of uh, the oppression of black people, even in suburb communities and et cetera. So there's always a, a point to be made, but in terms of privilege, I don't think it's as not to, no, not to be punny, but it's not as black and white as it once was. Yeah. Okay. So I definitely think that society in general is making progress as far as uh, privilege towards a certain race, in this case, white privilege goes. I think that's definitely, uh, there's becoming less of it. And absolutely, there should be. There should not have been any in the first place. But as history tells us, there yeah. obviously world's very blatantly was. Yeah, exactly. It's the world's an imperfect place. We can strive for perfection, but it's difficult to attain. Um, what you did mention, though, I like that point about hiring in the workplace. And as far as diversification goes, diversification is obviously very important. But I've always been very uh, curious about hiring practices. When uh, when you you know filled an online application, you have to say whether you're a minority or something or whatever, mm -hmm. because you, you do have to do that at least for the jobs that I've applied for in the past. And I think that that kind of goes against. I think values. it should be illegal. Well, yeah, I, I don't think it makes sense, and I don't know if that's just a white male in me talking, but I think it should be the best candidate gets the job, regardless of. Uh, ethnicity, race, oh, religion, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, you need to hire the best candidate and not worry about what uh, they look like. Yeah. Whether it's if I'm going up against somebody who is a person of color or minority or something like that, if they're a better candidate than me, by all means, I hope you get the job. It should be thrown in the hat. I think the only argument to that is 
people still believe that it's so systemically embedded that, you know, you see someone with a white last name that they're going to have an edge over uh, someone with an ethnic. And that is an incredible argument because I think that is absolutely true. Uh, And it's difficult to get that out of society, but it is something we need to get out of society. And that goes back. It's almost like counter countering my point perfectly where the best candidates should get hired, but, and we shouldn't like look at minorities, but if we do that and we take out the minority aspect of it and they're only hiring the best candidates, then do we go to back to a systemic situation where uh, a white hiring male hires uh, another white male because they think they've got, you know, stuff in common or something like that, which is very wrong. And uh, it, it shouldn't be done because it, it goes against hiring the best person once again. So just talking yeah. about hiring specifically there, I think situation. that we need, it's tough. It's a, it's a no win situation there. It's mm-hmm. impossible to, to get it down to a, a perfect science, but as far as privilege goes, we absolutely have privilege. Nick. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think you guys like really hit the nail on the head. I think there needs to be uh, an acknowledgement that there has been a quote unquote white privilege um, historically um, as Braden alluded to, you know, you are seeing um, hiring practices that um, sort of, cater to minority groups and i'm not saying that's necessarily wrong or right i'm just saying it's reality as as braden brought up my my only um sticking point is is um i think diversity is important but i think diversity of thought is also just as important the ability to have differing viewpoints on a subject on the same subject um, and a different way to approach a subject, especially in business is huge because you can have, you know, someone see a commercial one way versus seeing another way. Like some people may have loved Braden's uh, Tim Hortons commercial that he hated, right. Representing all those different cultures. Mm -hmm. I think that having differing viewpoints within an organization or a business is, is incredible and, and very much needed. My only concern that Braden Braden brought up as well is those hiring practices. Are we going too far down a road where, you know, it's going, it's, it's shifting the uh, pendulum a little bit too far, you know? Yeah. And it's become like almost just a political ploy for, for politicians and for companies. You see it all the time, like commercials, they'll literally exploit uh, people with disabilities, people of colors with disabilities. And it's just, for the media because it's like who's going to say anything bad about having you know a biracial couple one who's in a wheelchair and a kid who's playing like sledge hockey right and you see these ads and you know whether or not you're for it um, the point that nick's making essentially is that it's there and maybe it's there a little bit too much who knows yeah but maybe we can move on from uh heavy politics we can talk about something uh, I'm going to let you kick this one off, Rainsy, but just talking about the federal prisoners being vaccinated before the vulnerable. Yeah, so I don't think we should spend too much time touching on this. We've already gone on for quite some time, but mm-hmm. I just had a quick question about this. I did see this talk point. Uh, who is distributing the vaccines to the federal prisoners? I know it's, is it it's the a, federal government? It's a government? federal thing. Yeah, actually, Doug Ford actually came out today or yesterday and he was bashing the feds for the move because okay. funny enough, the federal government came out last week, Trudeau, and bashed... Um, a lot of the conservative 
premiers as well, especially yeah. in Alberta and Ontario for their, their rollout of the vaccine, even though he kind of failed to secure vaccines for Canadians, which we've talked about many times. Um, so he's kind of come out and bashed them and he pulls a move like this where federal vaccines are being yeah. distributed to prisons. Kind of mind boggling. I don't know if that's all I'm going to say on it. If you guys want to touch on yeah, it let quickly. Me, I'll touch on it quickly. Uh, my, I have a couple questions about it. And uh, if these questions can get answered, then I, I think you need to justify any decision in government. Mm-hmm. So is how many doses were withheld to within the federal government? Why were they withheld? Were they all withheld to give to federal prisoners? Have scientists and doctors said that, uh, you know, there's issues in the federal, I know there's an outbreak of 150 cases in the, uh, in the Kingston penitentiary. Um, is this outbreak impacting, is there some, is there some way that it's, you know, getting out of the prison and impacting society? Or is it like a, a bubble issue, kind of like a, a long-term care home or something like that might be? Uh, I think it's very difficult to say whether or not it's it's right or wrong. I'd like to see the thought process of the doctors and the scientists at the federal level that made the the decision essentially and try and figure out why, why they did this. Because I assume there's a reason and a justification for everything. Was it the Ontario government or the provincial governments weren't rolling out vaccines fast enough and they had some left over that uh, they needed to use up or something like that. They needed to free storage for more vaccines. So they were like, okay, let's get them into some federal prisoners or something like that. Um, At the end of the day, I don't think we want to see, you know, prisoners or people die in Canada to COVID regardless of who they are. I think we need to administer the vaccines to the vulnerable first though. So yep. it's, I saw some talk points in that article, just kind of discussing the like COVID transmission in the, in the uh, prisons and the penitentiaries and whatnot. And it made good points out of somebody coughs in a penitentiary, you're exposing a lot of people, right? And it's, it, it's a very easy place for the virus to kind of spread and incubate within people. And it it turns into su- kind of super spreaders. And then are those, people then like the prisoners with the virus, are they then coming in contact with, uh, you know, guards and stuff that bring it home to their family? And then does that spread uh, in, in the public as well? So, and if we're able to curb that spread and get it out of the public and we have leftover vaccines, I think that's the only way that it's, it's kind of justifiable. I think we need to give it to healthcare workers and frontline workers first. Yep. So I, I'm very, I'd like to get more information about this before I really set my full, opinion and or state my full mm-hmm. opinion on it. Yeah, I think there's like, a lot of questions. It's a huge philosophical debate, right? Because there's going to be Absolutely. people out there that argue, you know, they're in prison for a reason while at the same time there's, or whilst at the same time you have people arguing for human rights, right? So it's one of those mm-hmm. sticky situations once again. And, and you brought up a great point about spreading it to prison guards. Actually, that's how my uncle in Scotland passed away. My cousin is a prison guard and he brought COVID home from the prison and my uncle unfortunately passed away from that. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a, a very interesting point you brought up now. Does that, you know, diminish the, or mitigate the validity of the argument of talking about, well, they're in prison for a reason? No, I don't think it does, but we could pretty much ramble on on philosophical debates about this for, for hours. I don't know if there's anything you want to add, Nick, but there's not really much else to, to add. No, I just, I just think that nurses and vulnerable people and frontline responders, in my opinion, would need it more than uh, a prisoner. But I, I also believe that prison guards you could count them among the um frontline workers so exactly yeah, I, I, why aren't we vaccinate vaccinating prison uh great point you know employees because 
obviously those are the people that are bringing it into the prison. If we eliminate yeah. bringing it into the prison, then we can eliminate it at the, at the core of the issue. Yeah, right. And there you so go. I think that that's that makes, probably the solution right there. That makes way more sense to eliminate the risk of it getting into the prisons. And then there's obviously, I'd say the ratio, I don't know what the ratio of uh, prison employees or penitentiary employees to um, inmates. inmates are in, in Canada, but I think there would be less employees to uh, uh, inmate ratio. So it might be more yeah. beneficial to vaccine the employees uh, rather than the inmates, because you can curb the spread essentially there. And then we're also curbing the spread in the public as well. It's kind of killing two birds with one stone. So see how crazy this is. Three, three average guys have a conversation. They come up with something like that. And then you have the federal government doing what they're doing. Yeah. I think Zach we just for, solved the problem. <laughs> Zach for prime minister. Yeah, seriously. Tweet but, that. Uh, so is there <laughs> anything else? Uh, anything else you guys want to discuss today? We've been going, it's been good conversation uh, from my end. Great conversation. We rambled oh. for uh, quite a while and a lot of good talk points. Nick, you got anything you, you want to add before we kind of wrap up here? No, I uh, I think oh, you guys out, have some. Shout oh, out your buddy, ahead. Brian. Shout out your buddy, Brian. Oh, yeah. yeah. I want to give a big shout out to uh, my buddy, Brian Fraser. Um, this guy, uh, I went to school with him back in my hometown, and uh, he uh, was a technical producer for a, a radio station in Ottawa. And uh, he's a massive sports fan. Um and uh, he caught leukemia and uh, he battled it uh, for about a year. And then he kind of got the, the all clear, clear uh, announcement. And then um, he got sick again and the leukemia uh, was more aggressive and, and uh, um, mutated. And uh, he uh, didn't have the uh, most promising prognosis. And he was sort of uh, confronted with his own uh, mortality. And, uh, you know, he, he made the tough decision um, to forego treatment. And I couldn't uh, imagine, you know, having to make that decision at, at the age that he had to. Um, so he's, he's, a, he's a massive Sense fan. Um, he loves Jake Sanderson and Tim Stutzla. This is the only time we'll give Sense fans love on the pod. Yep. <laughs> um, but uh, he's he's one of the most courageous guys I've ever ever uh, met, and uh, he's really active on social media. He's uh, received a couple messages from like Drew Brees, uh, Brady Tuchuk. Like he he's he's getting some traction in the uh, sports world. Um, and uh, he I chatted with him the other day, and he and he just wants everybody to. Um, one treat him the same but two he wants everybody to really uh consider going to donate blood um because that's that's really what helped him um through the process and he also um wants everybody to know that right now donors are sorely needed because of the coronavirus pandemic and um if you're able and you feel safe enough um to go donate and if you can't monetary uh, donations are just as important um, you know, they, they can use that money on ads and, and, uh, research and stuff like that. So, uh, big shout out to Brian Fraser. Um, we're all, uh, thinking about you and praying for mm-hmm. you and, um, yeah. in our thoughts. Yeah. Thoughts awesome. and prayers with Brian and his family for sure. Absolutely. I think it, uh, we'll leave it at that. I think that's enough for today's episode. We, this is a long one. We appreciate everybody listening in. If you, uh, disagree with anything we said, Send us a message on Instagram. We'd love to continue the conversation, maybe even get you on the podcast to kind of express your own yep. uh, beliefs and opinions. Cause at the end of the day, we're just a fellow's chatting. So 
Yeah, keep an open like mind to... and uh, yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah, Positive thanks, change, thanks for having me on, eh? Anytime, buddy. Anytime. I will also shout out your pod, eh? When are you dropping your first epi? So we're uh, we're going through the process. We got a logo designed. We which, got stuff which like sucks. that. Logo sucks. <laughs> um, the podcast is going to be called uh, A Reader. So good um, name, good name, bad logo. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll, it'll probably uh, be either early next week or the week after um, the first the, the Monday. So uh, yeah, check it out. Give it a follow on Instagram. E H R E I D E R. A Reader. And uh, I should be on there if you guys. That could be bad for your for your listeners or people listening now. Like I don't want to listen to that jackass anymore. So <laughs> had enough yeah, of him. And, yeah. and Rains, he's gonna hop on. It's a lifestyle podcast. You might hear some gambling, maybe a little politics. Maybe I can touch on gambling. Bit. I've done it. I've played a few hands of blackjack here and there. Just just quick quick story. Do you remember when we were at uh, Bull and Barrel at the sidebar on a Wednesday during a pack night? We were playing four hands each, twenty dollars on uh, <laughs> blackjack in the middle of the bar. All these women are around us trying to talk to us and we're just degenerate gamblers sitting at the side of the sorry bar. grandma your uh, grandson's a degenerate <laughs> <laughs> oh no 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 my if my grandma's still if grandma's is still listening right now she is a bigger gambler than me she gets free rooms at seasbos she gets free rooms at seasbos like they want her to come back that's how much she uh she supports the windsor economy when she comes down to visit oh, me and she's yeah. got their slots in hanover and stuff like that oh buddy she'd be fired up to hear that story she's uh she's pro gambling for sure it. It's funny. Next time, next time I come across, we'll I still get free rooms at Caesars, so we'll go. Flex, right. flex. Uh, that's what we're doing after the pandemic. And uh, thanks for coming on. And everyone, check us out in uh, the next episode. Take care, fellas.